Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Stockwell service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit christchurchlondon.org. I'm going to read from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Uh, should come up behind me. Let's get straight into it. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things... And as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you in heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So, uh, yeah, good morning, everyone. This is uh, part of the series we've been doing for a number of weeks now on Jesus the King. And today we're going to be focusing on the ascension of Jesus as he goes up into heaven. Um, So we've heard the first half of the first chapter of the book of Acts, where we see him ascending to heaven. But before I get into the detail of this slightly mysterious passage, let's just start with a bit of background on the book of Acts which is where we find ourselves. So Acts was written by one of Jesus' followers, Luke. Uh, Luke also wrote one of the four Gospels. Any ideas which one? Amazing. Yeah. Mark. Um, it was Luke. And uh, <laughs> yeah. So the two, the two books are very closely connected, so much so that the end of the Gospel of Luke is actually the same as the beginning of the book of Acts. We hear and we see the story of Jesus rising up into heaven. Traditionally, we we read the New Testament like this. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are the the Gospels, the story of Jesus' life. Then we read Acts, which is the work of the apostles and the growth of the early church. Then the epistles, which is the letters to churches, and then so on all the way to the last book in the New Testament, the book of Revelation. However, a slightly different way of thinking about the flow, if you like, of the New Testament. It's not as Acts being a separate genre or a separate book away from the Gospels, but a bit more like Matthew, Mark, John, Luke part one, and then Luke part two, Acts. Now, I'm not trying to reorder the Bible or rename books in the Bible. I don't quite have that kind of clout. All I'm trying to say is that's a helpful way of thinking about how Luke and Acts work together. They are the same sides of a different coin, or two different sides of the same coin. So same writer, same storyline, probably written about the same time of the events that are actually happening rather than a long time after. Um, and it's kind of like the film. Anyone seen June, uh, that Frank Herbert film? I was, so I'm familiar with the book, right? We got halfway, about two and a half hours into that film. You know, I was getting a bit tired. And I was wondering, they better get a move on here. They haven't finished the story. They haven't even gone into the desert yet properly. 
and I've been here for two and a half hours. That means this film's probably going to run another two and a half hours. And then the film ended, and I realized it was actually only part one. There's still a lot of story to tell in part two. We're going to have to wait a couple of years for it. So it is with Luke and Acts. Luke finishes the story of Jesus' ascension, but he still has 28 chapters of story to tell. Luke chose the significant event of the ascension as his hinge point between the two books. For Luke, it's both the end of something and the beginning of something else. Another way uh, Christians have historically read through the New Testament is a bit like this. Again, you have the Gospels stopping with the resurrection and our celebrations on Easter Sunday, celebrating Jesus coming back to life. Then we read Acts starting with Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and then what happens to the church afterwards. We also typically like things in threes, management consultants in the room. You love this. How many times in the Christian faith have you heard the phrases, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection? Now, all those, those things are wonderful and right and good and are foundational, in fact, to our belief. But sometimes what that means is we underemphasize things that are right in front of us. Even my favorite theologian, a guy called Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, seems to do this. So he wrote a commentary, or really a 13 years worth of sermons on the book of Romans that he preached over in Westminster Chapel. And I read this while I was at uni on the bus. Like I'd read one chapter on the bus on the way in, and another one on the way out. Don't ask me why, I was a young man. Um, and so he's incredibly exhaustive. Like he'll pick one verse, and he'll just do it to death. So Romans 8.16, he did seven sermons on it. So like 0.14 verses per sermon. So I, I assumed that when you know, I, I knew I was going to do Acts 1, and I, I've, I'm the proud owner of a six-volume commentary on Acts by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. So I thought, oh, this is great. I'm going to have four chapters at least. And then I found this. He starts with the introduction to Theophilus and then skips straight to Acts chapter 2, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't even mention it in there. Now, I'm sure he's done something at some point somewhere else. But the point is, this is typically how we look at the book of Acts. It starts with Pentecost, and the gospel ends with the resurrection. But in fact, what's really happening here is the gospels end with the ascension, and Acts starts with the ascension. So I'm here today to advocate for this slightly overlooked part of our Christian history. I'd like to draw your attention back to this pivotal and powerful moment that sits between those two books. I want us to re-familiarize ourselves for the first time, or for the first time, depending on your story, on the person of Jesus and his last moments here on earth in physical form. Throughout this whole series as in, on Jesus the King, we've been able to discover or rediscover the narrative of Jesus' life, which was that he lived. He was crucified, he died, he was buried And after three days, he came back to life. And then he spent about 40 days appearing to his followers and about 500 other people. After which, he ascended into heaven. And then he promised the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, who is also God. And he also promised his eventual return in the same way that he left. So let's get stuck in specifically what's happening in parts of this verse. So his words to his disciples, he says, you heard, who heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. 
In other words, Jesus is telling his followers to wait for the Holy Spirit, who will give them power to build Jesus' church across the world. Now, I can't go into tons and tons of detail about the Holy Spirit today. That's actually someone else's talk, I think, next week. So I won't steal too much material from them. But it's just important to know this is going on for a reason. And Jesus is leaving for a reason. And then it says, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. At the end of Luke, uh, in chapter 24, he gives us a bit more detail when he says, lifting up his hands, he blessed them. Jesus blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. We don't know what that blessing was. We will never know. But what we're interested in today is that amazing moment of someone drifting up into the sky and into heaven and obscured by a cloud. And some of these images of heaven, as we talk about it, might be a bit familiar or images might pop into our head. Traditionally, images might look a bit like this one. So a bunch of people on earth, a bunch of people sitting on a cloud in heaven, typically Italian, often semi-clothed, depending on the painter. Right? These are, these are early modern classical Vatican-based paintings of the heavenly scene that just tended to reflect what was going on at the time in like, that form of art, that form of impression. That is not what's being described in these verses. Symbols are very important in the Bible. And I don't mean symbols like in a Dan Brown no- novel, like this symbol means all this different stuff. What I mean is like situations, events, scenes, if you like, that are happening in the Bible that hark back to things that have happened before in other points of Scripture. Symbolic events that have deep meaning for what is happening now. So as we read things in the Bible, we might take the events at face value, but if we look at the symbol or the symbolism that appears, we can see what's happening perhaps beneath the surface and sometimes how the people at the time might have seen these events. So let's start with clouds. Clouds are very important symbols in the Bible, and they symbolize a few things. I picked three, again, for you management consultants, and they all begin with P. How about that? So God's presence. So in the Old Testament, the people of Israel, when they traveled through the desert... They were accompanied at night by a pillar of fire. And during the day, they were accompanied by a pillar of cloud, representing God's presence with them, leading them through the desert. When Moses went up the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments and hear from God, the mountain was covered in cloud for six days while he was up there. In Thessalonians 4, it says, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Presence. Number two, they also symbolize God's promises and his faithfulness. Again, when Moses was up the mountain, God was making promises while the mountain was shrouded in cloud. But we also see him making clouds and rainbows to make a promise after the great flood of his promise to people and all of creation. In Psalm 36 and Psalm 57, we hear about God's steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. And then finally, clouds also symbolize God's power, particularly over the universe. In Psalm 97, it says, Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. In Psalm 104, it says, He lays the beams of the chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides the wings of the wind. And Jesus even said about himself, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand power 
and coming from the clouds of heaven. God's presence, God's promises, and God's power. So Jesus' body disappearing into clouds is less about our sight being obscured. We can't see, but like those annoying clouds, like today, the clouds that are just going over the sun and getting in the way of our sun. It's less about that and more about the representation of God's presence, God's promise, and God's power in heaven. The scene of the ascension is Jesus entering the heavenly realm where God's presence is absolute. Jesus, God himself, is making a promise in that moment to send the Holy Spirit and to return later. And when he returns later, he promises to return in power. Presence, promises, and power. And then we have heaven. So due to the images like the one I I showed a moment ago, pretty much every depiction of uh, heaven on telly, in cartoons, in comedy, The Simpsons, Tom and Jerry, I, I don't know what the kids are watching these days, but suffice to say, cla- like heaven will look a, a bit like that. Even Philadelphia have one. Every heavenly scene is just a bunch of people lurking about on a cloud. And it kind of comes from these verses. But where is heaven? And how do we get there? Do we really believe that the main factor in locating where heaven is, is altitude? How high in that case? Which cloud in our atmosphere is heaven on? Will Elon Musk build a starship powerful enough to get us there? Perhaps heaven's hiding somewhere in the universe, perhaps in behind the event horizon in a black hole. I swear the first time I like really got geeky about things in cosmology, it's kind of my thing, and someone explained how a black hole works. It's like where gravity is infinite and time and space kind of collapse and break down and it's infinitesimally small. I thought, that's where heaven's hiding. That's the other universe. And then I watched Interstellar and I thought, yes, it def- this is amazing. It could be this. But what do I know? That is an absolute waste of time. The problem is, the more time we spend trying to figure out the answer of where heaven is, the more we reduce the domain of heaven to something we can define in a box. Or in South Park, they found heaven, built a ladder and decided to bomb it. Like, it's not going to happen. We don't know where it is in a geographical location. It's not like that. Wherever heaven is mentioned throughout the Bible, yes, it talks about sky. It talks about clouds and it talks about up. And we actually know loads about heaven, just not its coordinates. It's the domain of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's the place where God is present, ruling. It's the center of God's kingdom. It's a place of love, of worship, and community. In the book of Revelation, we see images of a garden and a great city where Jesus provides the light. It's not a a place to escape to, but a place that is fundamentally, inextricably linked to earth. In Revelation, we get the impression, hence the name Revelation, that we're getting a view behind the curtain of a realm where things are real. The way things really are, in fact, and the way things really should be. Heaven is a reality. It is real as the one you and I are living right now. And it's not on another planet. It's not hiding behind the event horizon. It's hiding behind the curtain of God's mystery.
So this image of Jesus being taken up tells us not that he's flying away from us to become more distant, but that his body is transitioning from earth, a physical space, into heaven, a metaphysical space. He's taking his rightful place in the presence of God the Father. He's making promises to send the Holy Spirit and to return in physical form as he left. And in power to rule over all of creation from a throne. So we don't have time today to go into every last component of the ascension, but in the time we have left, I just want to talk about what the ascension means for God's presence. Now that might sound a bit weird because I've just spent about 10 minutes talking about Jesus going up into heaven and away from us, his physical body going away from us, but just bear with me a moment. Many, many of us might think and feel when we read about the ascension, I, I've, I've thought this before, um, it's like, why did he have to leave? Like, what, why did he, I, I know the stuff I said about, you know, he's making promises and he wants to send the Holy Spirit and that kind of stuff, but wouldn't it have been better if he stayed? We read the Gospels, right? And we see how amazing Jesus was, how attractive he was to most people and how powerful he was. God himself walking the earth with us, like us, with followers. How awesome would it be? How bold and courageous would we be and we, would we feel as a church knowing that our saviour God walked with us? He was famous and followed, healing people with his own hands, performing miracles. It would be so amazing. And we could sing the song Jerusalem for real. And do those feet in present times walk upon England. Anyone? Some things are not meant to be, like me being on the worship team. It might feel great, but some things we think are a great idea are just not meant to be. There are seven billion people on earth, I think, and counting. Imagine trying to get time with Jesus. In his once-in-a-decade visit to the UK, try getting close to him to try and touch his robes, as we see people do in the Bible, trying to lean in, desperately hoping to get picked as one of his disciples. In Mark 2, verse 4, it says, When they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they'd made an opening, they let down on the bed which the disabled person lay. And in Luke 16, verse 9, it said, And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Imagine how you would feel hearing that your worst enemy or some sleazy millionaire who managed to get access to Jesus for a few minutes and came away bragging about their proximity to the greatest person who ever lived, that they managed to look him in the eye and that he spoke to them. Thank God that we're not restricted by a set of coordinates or a temple or a cloud in the atmosphere, or even a human body, where the only place to experience the presence of God was in fact impossible to get to. The ascension is essential. Without the ascension, we don't have the transformation of Jesus' personhood from the earthly realm to the everywhere possibly present heavenly realm. We read in Ephesians 4... He who descended 
is the one who also ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. In John 14, it says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live. You will also live. In that day, you will know that I am in my father and you are in me and I am in you. We often read the ascension like someone's died. We talk about people dying and go to heaven as Jesus went to heaven, but this is not a death story. 40 days before this, Jesus came back to life. He conquered death. He was buried, and then he returned to life. The ascension is not the end of his life. He's returning to the domain of heaven. He lives. He's here. You in him, and him in you. He's not gone far away. He's drawn close. These verses are about transition, not travel. The beauty of the ascension is not just that we know that Jesus sits by the throne in heaven, not just that it means that he will return to earth one day again in physical form, and not just that it means that he will send the Holy Spirit. The beauty of the ascension is that it means that the God of the universe, although seemingly far away sometimes by maybe our misconceptions or our experiences, is in fact here today in you, in me, in this room. We pray in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. A really helpful view um, of how heaven and earth interact is not as a planet earth down here and heaven up there, as I've said before, in a cloud. It's a bit like this, a Venn diagram. Again, I did this for you management consultants, so you'd understand. (laughs) Um, So yeah, earth and heaven, two realms that are overlapping. They're not the same thing. They're not the same place, but they are inextricably linked. Two overlapping kingdoms where God reigns supreme. And when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we're asking for heaven to come to earth. We're asking for the overlap to become bigger, to become stronger. This means that your access to heaven is not about traveling. It's about connecting with the presence of God. You do not have to push through a crowd to touch Jesus' robe or smash your way through a roof and be lowered down on a bed to get in his presence. You can stand where you are right now and be with him. In Hebrews 1 verse 3 it says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. If you want to know what God is like, look no further than Jesus. He is the exact imprint of God. Another beautiful thing about the ascension is not that only that Jesus draws near now, but that we can draw increasingly near to God for the rest of our lives and forever. Jesus lived the life on earth like ours in the same way we walk the earth today. And he died on the cross. And in the same way, when we become followers of Jesus, 
our old selves die. Jesus was buried in a tomb for three days. In the same way when we get baptized, we're dunked below the waterline to symbolize our old selves dying. And on the third day, he rose again. In the same way, we are brought to life through Jesus. And in baptism, we're raised back out of the water as a symbol. And it doesn't stop there. Jesus ascended into heaven, the eternal realm, a place where God's presence is absolute. In the same way, your life has been made eternal. That right now, your access to God is not limited by the time you have on earth. That in the future, your destiny is with God. His ascension means he came back to life. And not just a heart beating again, but an eternally placed life. The pain and the sorrow of the crucifixion is lost in joy. Shame is swallowed up in glory. The pain is lost in bliss. And the death in immortality. So unless Jesus comes back very, very soon, we'll all pass away and our bodies will be buried. And then like him, we'll be raised back from the dead and we will ascend into heaven. Surrounded by the cloud of God's presence. Full of the promise of eternity. Filled with the power of God through the Holy Spirit. Charles Spurgeon um, is a preacher who used to preach over in Elephant and Castle in the, in the tabernacle over there a long time ago. Uh, said that, have courage. That glittering road up to the highest heavens which Christ has trodden, you too must tread. The triumph which he enjoyed shall be yours in your measure. Can the band come up again, please? Thank you. Some of you today, um, you might feel like God is distant. He's up there somewhere, away from you, in another place, and cut off from your life. In the busyness of life, in the day-to-day humdrum, in the tiredness, in the pain and the difficulty, sometimes it might just feel like mileage is the thing between you and God. For you today, I would actually say Jesus' words again. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Some of you today might feel stuck, might feel broken, perhaps hopeless, like your future isn't much of a future. And again, I'd like to share Jesus' words with you. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and lean on me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And some of you today might have never encountered Jesus before. During the next time of worship as Lydia leads us, this might be an opportunity for you to do just that. Asking God to connect with you right now 
in this room. You don't need to be in a church, and this is for everyone. You don't need to be in a temple. You don't need to be anywhere near an altar. Platonus College will do. Why don't we stand together?